All right, welcome. I'm Kevin Libwit, joined by Andrew Page. We're from Theogen, and this is the Bioinformatics Lab podcast. And te- <laughs> today, we're going to be talking about sort of narrative of tech adoption over the years in pathogen genomics, uh, from you know software packages to containers, workflow languages, uh, and now at this point of cloud-based GUIs and, and the different ways in which that's impacting our field. Andrew, you have much more time in, in the field than I have, so you have maybe a longer time horizon. I say that with absolute respect for your wisdom and experience in the field, um, but yeah. you have a broader perspective of what this has looked like, because again, whenever I talk about the sort of tech adoption story, I kind of started package managers, but of course, there's beyond that, you know, b- b- before, uh, but all this conversation of how do we make this, how do we mature this as a field for interoperability, reproducibility, and, and, and all the like, so... When when you think about the the narrative of tech adoption, surely it starts before package managers. Oh yeah, like I mean, I remember the dark days where you'd have to hire someone, you know, just to sit there installing software because it would be it would take a week to install one piece of software, you know, because you'd be editing it and trying to find two hundred different you know dependencies for a compiler that you know was last released five years ago. Yeah. Um, so we've come a we've come a very long way. Um, even then, you know, like languages and everything, like I started off in, I guess, Ruby and then Perl um, for bioinformatics. And, you know, languages change all the time. And no one uses Perl these days, unfortunately. Well, me. Uh, but anyway, yeah, you know, and then we've all moved to Python. So, you know, things change over time and uh, we do get better. And actually, uh, genuinely, I think that um, Perl isn't as good uh, for bioinformatics as Python. You know, I've after maybe about 10 years, I've come to that conclusion of, of using it. But then I see like my son is using Rust and he's like, oh, this is amazing, you know, like, and uh, it's much faster and blah, blah, blah. And it probably is actually, but I'm not going to give up Python, you know, um, <laughs> for some new fad language. It's only been around a couple of years. Uh, anyway, so I digress. Like, uh, you know, if you just take the most basic installing software and package managers, like the big thing a few years ago was just, you know, with Debian, uh, yeah, and uh, Ubuntu uses Debian packages. So can you get into, can you get something in a Debian package, you know, because once it's in there, then you're sorted for life, you know? Um, and Debian Med was the big one for our fields, which is um, for biomedical resources go in there. And yeah, phenomenally difficult. If you start packaging for Debian Med, they will assign you like a mentor, if someone who can guide you through the process over a few months. Wow. Because it's quite, you know, they want these things to to work universally and, you know, be working for a long time. So a few months to guide you through the process of building your Debian packages, you know, which would then be sustainable in a long term and uh, kind of easy to maintain. And, God, so that was probably first got into in about 2015. Yeah. Um, because I just happened to work with a guy who's one of these maintainers. And that the advantage of that is when you go to command line, you can just have apt get install yeah. blah, like Rory or, or something like that. And that's that lowers the bar so much that it makes it trivial. And if you make your software easy to install, then of course people will use it. And that's that's a key magic trick, you know, to uh to getting people to use your software is to make it trivial to install. And then you know, you go one step further, and then we had a uh, homebrew do you remember that yeah i do that's that's about when i entered the the chat yeah. the homebrew space. which is uh which is a little bit you know uh, another system they made it a bit easier to go and install software uh 
but it kind of fell off the rails. Um, they became uh, unwieldy. Conda came along, Bioconda, and yes. that's been kind of the default now for people to use. Um, because it just works, and you know everyone is kind of gathered around that. It's quite easy to install stuff. Dependencies are you know are reasonably okay at the moment. Um, you can get into obviously a bit of a nightmare sometimes. Um, and then Mamba has really helped in the installation process. You know, rather than waiting uh, an hour to install one piece of software because things got so complex with resolving the dependencies, you, you know, it, it now works. It's pretty quick. So, you know, we've come a long way. Um, we've also come a long way with workflow managers. What was the first workflow manager you used? Make. I, I think I would consider Make the first kind of workflow manager. Mm -hmm. I, I was writing Make files where I was like writing shell scripts of you know just the executables and then i would compile them to, to not compile them i guess but i would kind of curate the workflow in through a make file and then i would define endpoints at the beginning and then it would be you know that's how the workflow worked it was just recipe style it would define the endpoint define the process it's it very much the same components i mean and then that's where i started learning about snake make which was really make in python and then where i really started running in workflow managers was uh, use of Nextflow. And I think it was actually Aaron Young, on, again, on the Staff B side, who kind of introduced us to um, workflow managers and specifically, uh, maybe it was Kelsey Florick, actually. I don't remember exactly, but they introduced us to the concept of workflow managers. So we kind of went from the conversation of how do I get a single tool to work properly on my, my, my machine, ensure that the dependencies are consistent throughout the different environments, but then workflow managers changed it in that we were able to string them all together in a really cohesive way. Sorry, one second. Um, but that became kind of a really pivotal point. Again, I'm speaking on the staff B side, but this is something that I think, think is echoed throughout the field of it's so much more standardized in how we're doing these, these, these analysis. You don't have to write your own Python logic to string data from, you know, your aligner to your, variant caller to whatever it is downstream for characterization rather there was a consistent language there somebody outside of it of of your laboratory can look at it and understand okay this is an excellent workflow i understand the the architecture of this this entire repository and moreover than that i can take the modules from that and build them into my workflow in a pretty seamless way so that that was a huge jump in terms of interoperability collaborative development uh, that we saw in staff b uh, and we never really looked back from that. That became just the status quo. Yeah, the first one I used was um, called Vertebrate Resequencing uh, Codebase. It didn't even have a name. Like VR Codebase was uh, the name. And it was built for the Human uh, Genome Project. Not Human Genome. The Thousand Genome, Human Genome Project um, in, in the Sanger Institute. So this, this was before people were doing things at scale in genomics. So, you know, you're talking more than 10 years ago. And so a lot of, you know, Nextflow didn't exist. A lot of these other things did not exist. Yeah. And uh, so they had to be built, you know, and uh, the Sanger Institute was uh, at that time, you know, would be producing maybe, you know, 20, 30% of the world's sequencing from one place. So, you know, they had a scale that other people didn't have. And so that's what we adopted. And uh, we were then adopting it for pathogens, you know, which is quite different to human because you have to do a lot of things. Uh, you've got a lot of small little things and that's very different to human, which is you've got a few big things that you want to do things on. Um, so it's, you know, it's a flipped problem. And of course that breaks everything. And uh, yeah, 
So anyway, that was the first one I ever worked on and highly complex. Um, changing anything was very difficult. It was all in code. You know, it was on GitHub or whatever, but it was all in code and it was all in Perl as well. And, you know, everything was monitored by, say, writing little files to disk, you know, and checking them and whatever. So it worked, but, you know, the growing pains came in. And so then the next generation came out, um, which again was a um, super lovely, beautiful Perl. Um, but, you know, again, it was, it was more cloud computing focused and it did things very well. But but then, you know, I had seen Galaxy a few times. I was like, oh, it's actually pretty cool. So when I went to the Quartermans, uh, that was the first thing I brought in was Galaxy because, you know, you got a web server that anyone can use. It can run on a, on a cluster or on cloud. Um, it's got all the tools, uh, you know, kind of linked in and built in because people, you know, <clears throat> again, wrap up tools, simple XML files, wrap the tool up and make it work and, you know, can brought in Wakanda or whatever. And then that allowed a lot of people to do complex workflows, a lot of lab people who don't know the command line, moving them away from, you know, the this kind of black screen and a blinking cursor and they don't know what to do, you know, it's uh, to... Oh yeah, I can just click here. I can search for a liner, and then suddenly you can align your data, and you know everything flows in from the sequencers, and then it can self-service uh, to do their thing. And I think I really do think uh, GUIs, are, you know, they're worth their weight in gold. You can see the amount of stuff that people can do. So even in Excel, you know, you got power users of Excel can do phenomenal things if you just give them something straightforward, easy to use, good usability. They can work wonders. When it comes to the command line, obviously that's very powerful for doing things at scale and speed and for joining things together. But, you know, you have a very high barrier to entry there for, for an ordinary person. Even even someone who works in mathematics, it can be a high barrier to entry because you might have to read through lots of documentation to figure out how exactly does this fit in? What exact format does this come out in? You shouldn't have to solve that over and over again, you know. It's nice when you can just kind of have them linked together. You know, someone solves it once, maybe defines the outputs, say, um, for NextFlow or for, for Galaxy, and then it's there and it's forever, ever more works. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, workflow managers are fantastic, as are uh, things like solving dependencies with Conda. I just love that. I mean, Jesus Christ, like the, <laughs> the pain the absolute pain you used to have to go through to install software. And, uh, you know, if you, if you use clusters like the kind of old school HPC, you know, like basic physics clusters from back in the day, you know, massive, you know, machines in a, in a big room with blinking lights, actually installing stuff in those is a right pain in the arse, right? Because you have <laughs> one base operating system and you you kind of install stuff and load in stuff, but you know, like the the operating system we had that particular, you know, um, whatever was installed probably you know five years ago. That that's the version you're stuck with. That's the version the compilers are stuck with, and you can't change anything. You know, so actually having the ability to run Docker and Singularity and whatever is is amazing. And that I remember the arguments that people had, you know, about allowing Docker to run on a cluster. Like, no, that's security risk. You know, we can't be yeah. having that. Singularity did help out a little bit with that, but um, yeah, it, it's uh, we've come a long way, and now we're in the cloud. Like, I mean, Jesus, that, that, that's amazing. Yeah, you can just spin yeah. something up in a few minutes. You don't have to wait two years to to go through a procurement process and buy stuff. You can just bang there. You go have the resources, run stuff, and you have full control over it. Then you can tear it down. And those are that's often the the kind of three 
in terms of tech adoption, those are like the three turning points I always have in my mind. It first is sort of, maybe I put a slash in package managers and containers where it was solving the problem of dependencies and install and portability of their single tools in itself. And that's solving a lot of the problems that you described. And then, so now we can all, if I have a tool, if I have an assembler, I can run it in, in a really reproducible way in my environment and you can run it in the same way in your environment. Then the sort of next big tech adoption was the workflow managers. Not only do I have the same tools, I can string them in a way that uh, makes it plug and play. And as you mentioned too, it, these workflow managers not only help to standardize that, but they also standardize the, the running of them. I can run it on an HPC, I can run it on a local VM, or I can run it in the cloud. And all the workflow managers now have built-in capabilities for that scalability. And so that you briefly mentioned it is that that third layer is the, the GUI. The, the, the web applications that kind of wrap all these things together. You know, and my first experience with that was uh, using Galaxy actually through Genome Tracker. They adopted Galaxy as a platform. And I realized, oh my goodness, I don't have to teach CLI any longer. Rather, I could teach them to click a couple of buttons. I can show them the workflows and I can focus on the results and the analysis and interpretation rather than, you know, your Linux environment, your library directory structure. This CD means you're changing folders or something like that, you know? And, and I think I'm feeling this from, I think it was uh, Peter um, Van Houston in, in in Cape Town where he's, he said a line, and I don't think he meant to be, you know, codify this, but I thought it was a really powerful line that in public health, uh, they should be doing less bioinformatics and more public health. And I thought, oh, that's kind of a nice little line. It's like, yeah, we should really be working to abstract the sort of technical nuances of bioinformatics and really instead approach uh, provide them with tools that allow them to do public health. I think GUIs, uh, the graphic user interfaces behind that is is really what what allows us to kind of traverse that problem where you, you don't have to be card-carrying bioinformatician to do bioinformatics. Rather, you can use bioinformatics as a tool to inform your public health that, that you're implementing there. And, and you know, obviously, we've seen that. Uh, I mentioned Galaxy. Terra has been an incredible resource where you've seen that kind of come to play. Um, and then you see... Again, I'm stealing these terms from different people. Ali Black and her 10 recommendations for pathogen genomics, she coined this term of an open bioinformatics ecosystem that's built off all these technologies we've talked about. Containerized algorithms that are written in these standardized workflows that are made accessible through these GUI portals. And it's like, oh, okay, once you find that mix, we've seen that uh, that model allow us to distribute uh, bioinformatics tools to laboratories across the world. We've seen that happen in so many different ways. You know, we recently put out a publication in where Tara uh, from the Broad Institute has fit that model of the open bioinformatics ecosystem and that it's got a really well-maintained graphic user interface, cloud backend with GCP. Uh, it's got the doc store repository, which is, you know, coming out of the GA4GH universe there. Um, and then it, it, it's uh, because it's standardized workflows. You can also have the standardized outputs where that you can then transfer these outputs into different systems, be it transfer it to, you know, SRA and NCBI for, for distribution and, and international accessibility. You can also transfer these results into maybe more secure environments where you might be combining things with sensitive metadata for genomic epi investigation. So watching the tech adoption happen, it's gotten to us a point where now it's just these resources that uh, we've all been toiling with and trying to make sure that work on a machine now are in the hands of laboratorians. Uh, so that they can use these things, generate the results, and make sense of the data in, in real time, inform uh, what's happening on the, you know, either infectious disease side, be it public health, clinical, food safety, or otherwise. 
And you can see what happens, uh, you know, when things go wrong, uh, when things are not open, like by numerics, um, the company has decided, okay, there's not enough money to be made to maintain this, you know, for the public health world. So we're just going to shut it down. And that's it. And that's a closed source, locked away, highly critical tool for public health. And it's it's going. And had that been open, it would have been very different because then obviously, you know, the community could take it up and you know, keep maintaining it and extend it and, and whatnot and keep it alive. But if a commercial company holds the rights to that, you know, the source code and how it works and, and all the all the infrastructure behind it, then it's a it's a problem. And so we really do need to have open bioinformatics, open tools, open databases, open everything. Absolutely. And and that's definitely been part of the ethos in, in you know how we work professionally with public health labs is that we feel as if it's funded and supported by public health and it's applicable to a single public health lab, it's very likely going to be something that other public health laboratories can also find utility in. You know, for example, we work with laboratories in Mozambique uh, helping develop, you know, assays for HIV sequencing and analysis. These same resources that, that we're working with APHL Global Health to, to develop and innovate upon in, in Mozambique, we're watching being proliferated to laboratories in the U.S. who have the same interests. And again, getting back to that ethos of if we're going to develop this tool publicly funded. It needs to be open source and open accessible because it doesn't need to be closed off. That's not necessarily the business model that's conducive to ongoing support long term of, of uh, public health laboratory pathogen genomics here. Absolutely. Um, on the tech adoption front, actually, yeah. I was at a conference there the other day. Um, the what was it? Science meets policy using next generation sequencing to tackle foodborne threats at the uh, European Food Standards Authority. And that yeah. was really, really eye opening because all the different, you know, each country in Europe, you know, taking a slightly different way of doing things. But, you know, obviously everyone is doing public health and everyone is doing food safety and you, you want the same end goals more or less. And uh, it's very interesting to see how people are, are approaching different problems within the context of their own country. Some, you know, are going very much on the, uh, I suppose, short reads, you know, bang stuff out, do a CGM less T, share the CGM less T results. Um, others, you know, are very much more, well, you know, we'll release the data or we won't release the data or, or whatnot. Um, so, yeah, very interesting to see how people are approaching the same problem. Yeah, tech adoption. It, it's big. Yeah, we've only really talked about it on the sort of dry lab side of things, but also on the wet lab side of things. How are people adopting different sequencers, different platforms from Illumina to ONT? I think you have some perspective on ion torrent adoption and things like this, too. So, uh, yeah, I was a bit horrified to see um, some benchmark sets and they had like ONT. Sorry, they had ion torrent data, but not ONT data. And I was like, come on, like, you know, yeah. ion torrent. The last time I saw one was actually... Uh, is wrapped in plastic waiting for disposal in an underground car park. That's, that's you know? right. <laughs> it's, it's the first sequencing data I ever generated was actually on an ion torrent PGM. If, if you're familiar with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We they had were, that on my, they, my lab. They had the little kind of Xbox logos or something on them as well. Yeah. They? <laughs> they even had, I think a, a slot for your iPhone. If you wanted to, you know, put some uh, tunes on while you're preparing those libraries. It was it was an iPod or something something silly like that is a really old connector as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 It was. Uh, yeah. That was my first uh, time uh, generating sequencing data. We had those ion torn chips. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm diverting there, but that was my first tech adoption into it was ion torn, and it was interesting because you know yeah not the. I don't think we're saying anything that's wildly controversial, but you know known about the data. But every time I would put the data out there, people would talk about the 
the error profile kind of associated with what was being generated there. So it is interesting watching benchmarks uh, getting generated where, where you have a, a single technology with a known error profile without maybe also adding some context with either Illumina data or ONT data, especially for benchmarks. Yeah, and what was very eye-opening was uh, some countries don't allow people to use the cloud for security reasons. Mm. Um, so it very much limits them in what they can do in terms of mathematics and in terms of scaling up as well. They can't just go, we need more, bang, there you go. That's a huge point in talking about tech adoption is cloud computing. That Because that was a big conversation is infrastructure development across the U.S. that we were always a part of in staff B. And people were doing pretty much everything you could see in terms of on-prem servers, HPCs, cloud, working with academic HPCs and all the like. But then it just became so obvious that cloud was was the, the solution for all the reasons yeah. it is in every other industry. Um, so that, that's been a big thing. But, but it took a while. Like even in me and Virginia, it was like two and a half, three years of discussions with our IT before we were given our AWS account. Uh, but I think we're at a critical mass where we've seen so many laboratories kind of break the barrier, have the conversations with our IT that those conversations are shortening dramatically. And you're seeing wide adoption across really the world. Now. I, I know in academia, like um, when I came into the courtroom, it was all um, traditional HPC, you know, big cluster in, in, a, in a server room on-prem. And we moved over to OpenStack, you know, which is a private cloud, which yeah. is a million times better. And more flexible so you know that's where we started down and i'm sure in the future you know it'll be become public cloud because it's very easy to go from an open stack private cloud to a public cloud um but what during the pandemic is fantastic was that uh everyone all the um COVID sequencing was being done and uploaded to uh, a, an academic cloud called climb mrc climb which is uh you know open stack based in three different universities in the uk and so instantly resources were available, you know, like no one had to sit around and say, oh, you know, can we rent some resources from here or borrow some from here? It was just like, bang, there you go. Um, all available. And then the public health authorities um, like UKHSA were using Azure. Um, and, you know, everyone was just it was just cloud, 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 you know, yeah. either private or public. And there's no sitting around, you know, waiting for to to buy vast amounts of storage it was just like. We'll use what we can right now and solve these problems. I know other countries uh, struggle because there's legislation that says, I don't know, they can only, um, if, if they were to use the cloud, it can only be within their country or within one particular region. So it kind of makes things a bit more difficult. Obviously, Amazon and Google and Azure and uh, Microsoft are, are doing a good job by having data centers all around the world, but it is a problem. And then when you get into clinical stuff, a lot of stuff can't even leave like the hospital, you know, some yeah, really sensitive yeah. data, you know, you just can't cross that barrier. When I worked at Quadrum, we, uh, the building had the, we shared with the local hospital and obviously research in the hospital, we had two separate physical networks in one building and one, you know, one uh, kind of server room as well, you know, two separate physical networks because they had to keep, you know, the clinical stuff totally separate from the research stuff. Research is seen as, you know, I've seen more loosey goosey and, and high risk than the, the yeah. clinical stuff, which is fair enough. But anyway, it hopefully with time, people will adopt the cloud a bit more. Yeah. And before we end, the last front, or I guess we talked about with the historical tech adoption. Now, looking forward, I think you know, you and I have had a couple episodes on this, but what we're seeing is the big tech adoption that's really going to be changing the field is you know, machine learning and AI. And, and how it's going to impact things. And we saw little murmurs of it, even like with, with Pangolin, there was the Pangolin, and it was like, okay, how are people going to deal with this 
sort of black box of decision making. And it wasn't taken too kindly. It, I mean, it was taken in its utility and practicality and speed, but it was definitely a huge preference to the phylogenetic placement because people could make sense of the usher uh, approach versus machine learning. But it's going to be interesting over the next couple of years where more of this adoption of machine learning and, and AI in general there, um, or more specifically, I guess, is going to be interesting to see how uh, it impacts our field. I don't know if you have a hot take in the last couple of minutes before we close out in the tech adoption of AI and uh, in pathogen genomics. Honestly, I think it's going to change things in ways we can't even comprehend right now. You know, it'll just be there. It'll always be on. It'll just be part of what we do. And I'm excited for the future. You know, I'm excited to do less work. I'm, I love <laughs> now when I program that uh, it saves me so much time having to type stuff out because, you know, like it, it can, you know, pick up all the obvious stuff that I, I'm probably going to do. Yeah, because we're already using it in active writing, active programming. I'm really interested to see how the big tools kind of come in here. Because a lot of the what we do is a lot of classic categorization that seems well for the taking for these kinds of technologies. But I think it's going to be the, the policy and adoption of how do we, to what level of trust we put to this in knowing that we can't really necessarily just open up and understand how we came to these decisions. So that's what keeps our jobs exciting. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Good episode. We'll uh, continue on this conversation, I'm sure, in future ones in the uh, coming weeks.